0: Duke fans, hello and welcome to episode number 228 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Welcome to Labor Day weekend. We are jumpstarting this holiday with a very special interview today. Before we introduce our guests, I'm Donald Wine, the host for this week. I am back in D.C. where we should have wonderful weather this weekend. Also joining me, we have Sam Klein up in Boston. Sam, hello. Hello. Uh, hello, Donald. Nice to, nice to hear that you're back
1: in DC. Uh, the AC is out in my apartment. It's about 85 degrees in here. So I am dying and, uh, also excited to get to our guest today because we have
0: a lot of interesting stuff we want to talk about. Absolutely. And before we bring him in, still enjoying life on the Jersey shore, it seems it's Jason Evans. Hello, Jason.
2: Yeah. For labor day, I'm going to be coming back to Atlanta. Uh, so I'll be driving through Durham. If you, uh, lean out your window and wave, you'll be able to see me people. But, uh, But yeah, uh, uh, this is the end of my vacation, but enough about me. Let's talk to our
0: guest. Absolutely. As I mentioned at the top, we have a very special guest with us today. We are pleased to be joined by the director of broadcasting for Duke Athletics. He has been the play-by-play announcer for Duke basketball and Duke football since June of 2017. And you know him as the voice of the Blue Devils, David Shumate. Hello
3: to you and welcome to the DBR podcast. Thanks for having me on. I don't want to hear anything about heat. The heat heat indexes here in Durham have been like 110 (laughs) all week. And you guys are talking about 85 and and you're worried about that. I I can't breathe when I walk outside.
1: I was very very recently in Durham just a couple of months ago. So I I know what it's like. It's the the shock of thinking that you're in an air conditioned building and then slowly realizing
0: that you're not as the sun comes up in the morning. So (laughs) uh, I, I, I do need to defend myself a little bit. I will mention, David, that I spent the last month in Texas where the real temp was 110. So uh, coming back to D.C. where it's normally 115 heat index, and right now it's like 90, feels absolutely cold to me, which is great. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) no, it's good. We're glad to have you on since we are just a week away from the beginning of the football season. We're going to start with some football, and Sam is going to kick us off with some questions about David Cutcliffe's bunch. Sam? All right,
1: David, so we have i think on on our show we we've kind of been maybe denying that football season is coming because we've been so skeptical for for so long that that sure. the ACC and Duke is actually going to pull it off. so I wanted to start kind of with with you uh, what has the process been for you to one get back on campus and two get integrated back with the various teams because a big part of your job during the week when you're not calling the games is actually interacting with all the coaches and the players to get to know them so that you have stuff to talk about during the game. So what has that reintegration been like?
3: It's been strange in some ways. Like if you look at the big picture, it's in some ways been the longest summer since I've been here. But in other ways, it feels like the summer didn't happen Um, because everyone spent so much time indoors the first few months when we were dealing with this. And then you kind of start to peek your head out the door and then you (laughs) gradually get more comfortable doing different stuff. And uh, obviously, the team got back a, a couple of months ago. And, and then, you know, Bob Wiseman is the guy on campus who's kind of headed up all the integration protocols of, of who can come back and when they can come back and what access you'll have. Um, and I've been allowed to go to practice since they started, you know, working outside and, and the team collective stuff. Obviously, you're masked up, you're six feet, you're staying well away from the players and things like that. But um, I'm not back on campus. I'm working from home. Uh, mainly just go over there if I need to grab an interview or if I go to practice or if I need to get something with coach cut. Um, But it's different, but it's similar. If if that makes sense, we're doing all the same stuff, but I I would imagine similar to you guys, we're doing it in ways we never thought we'd ever be doing it. I mean, I'm out of practice with a 10 foot pole doing interviews to make sure I'm staying away from guys. Um, It's different, but hopefully on the back end, when when people are listening or watching stuff, it, it doesn't feel that different to them.
1: I want to talk a little bit about individual football personnel because that I guess we have the the opening game is coming up next weekend against Notre Dame. Uh, I think the player that Duke fans are probably most interested in is their new quarterback transfer, Chase Bryce, who, of course, came from Clemson, where he spent a lot of time on the sideline watching, you know, big championship teams perform at a very high level. What has it been like for him coming onto campus during all of this? And what do you feel are, are the expectations for him coming into a uh, a season that had a strange offseason for him to get integrated and get to know the rest of the team?
3: I think the the most interesting thing to watch with Chase has been obviously not being able to be here in person in the spring because of the pandemic was challenging, not having that face-to-face communication, they were able to do stuff over the phone, do stuff over Zoom, but to get on the field and get to know the guys, I mean, I think so much of of what's going to work for the passing game this year, now it hasn't been officially named, but if if Chase is named the starter, will be his relationship with those wideouts and and what he can do to to make this offense go. Um, And Chris Katrinik and Gunnar Holmberg are the other two guys in the mix for that competition, and they've kind of been working um, through some similar stuff, but the, the thing that has impressed me most in watching with Chase, and maybe it shouldn't be, that shocking coming from Clemson and and you mentioned the national championship pedigree. He's got no fear. He's got so much confidence in in what he goes about doing and and you can see that oozes out of him. So, you know, while he's got to learn a new system, while he's got to learn everything uh, coach cut wants from him in terms of lining up the protections and and things he puts on the quarterback, you can tell he's not a guy that's going to tiptoe into this. He's going to splash into the pool. And that's fun to watch because you can see some of the, the raw talent in the place he can make.
1: Duke recently lost starting center Jack Woliba, who was in line for a lot of preseason accolades and was likely going to have a, a big season. Who are the the other kind of senior leaders that that the offense is really leaning on to be there to, to help Chase Bryce along?
3: Yeah, it's just it's brutal for Jack, right? I mean, here's a guy that was clearly going to be the leader along the offensive line. But, you know, and Dave Harding, who I do the games with, and I were talking about this the other day, you you never want to see injuries, but even before this, this was going to be the deepest offensive line. Dave even thought maybe deeper than his 2013 Coastal Division Championship team that David Cutcliffe has had here. So they have some bodies to work with. Uh, Will Taylor is going to step into that starting role at center. He got some experience last year when Jack had an ankle injury. Um, but they do have a, a bunch of different guys. Devery Hamilton is a transfer that came in from Stanford. He's going to play tackle. Um, Jacob Monk is moving inside for guard. Um, But, you know, there's different wrinkles in there. And I look at a guy like, yes, he's just a sophomore, but Casey Holman uh, is a guy that I could see easily becoming a leader amongst this group. You don't always have to go um, to the older guys. He's just got the personality and the mentality of of what it takes to to succeed along the offensive line in my conversations with him. So I would look at Casey Holman, um, who's likely gonna be the starter at right tackle. Um, That would be the person that, that I would look at.
1: And then on the defensive side, I think the most interesting player for Duke is the to look at is the return of Mark Gilbert, who was a stalwart defensive back has has missed a lot of time due to injuries, um, but we finally hope that he is healthy and, and ready to play. What have you heard from him and and the rest of the defensive backs, which have been probably one of the the best positional groups for Duke the last few years?
3: He looks great. I mean, seeing him in practice, and it's funny, you know, two years ago he was a preseason All American candidate. Uh, and I think if, if in some ways, someone can be forgotten, I think he has kind of been forgotten in the build-up to the season because of the two years he missed. Essentially, I mean, two games, I guess he played Army and then Northwestern, and then had uh, the dislocated hip. But he's been out for two years, and I think people have forgotten how good he can be out there at corner. And it, it, it's not just winning his matchups. I talk about with Mac about this, the co-defensive coordinator who heads up the secondary. It's what you can do with the rest of your defense because now you've got a lockdown corner and it kind of shuts down one side of the field and you can't throw to that side of the field. You can rotate your protections um, how you want to, but you can also, you know, get after the quarterback a little more. And I think, you know, what Duke has along the defensive line is equally impressive to Mark Gilbert. Uh, When you look at Victor DiMuchegi and Chris Rumpf, who's gotten so much attention from pro football focus over the summer as a potential pro prospect and one of the best edge rushers coming back in the country i think the fact that you've got gilbert out there as a lockdown corner it might bear itself out surprisingly enough and higher sack numbers if that makes sense because the quarterback's not gonna have any easy throws
1: and then looking ahead at this opening game because of the retooled schedule due to covid duke opens with with notre dame this is now the second year in a row that duke has instead of i think usually duke has a, a somewhat easier opponent to start the season. Now this is the second year in a row where Duke has had a really strong opponent last year, of course, being Alabama. And then this year, Notre Dame, how does the team look ahead to the season knowing that their first game is also against one of their toughest opponents. And what do you expect to see from Duke in that, in that opening matchup?
3: Yeah. You think Cal- he should have like a college football playoff t-shirt or something. Cause he's played just about everybody that's been in at Clemson a couple years ago, Alabama and Notre Dame. And, It's strange, right? It's not just the factor that it's going to be Notre Dame. They're letting 20% of the people in there. So that's going to be strange. You're going to this iconic building to play a game, but it's going to have a weird feel to it. I don't think anyone would deny that. It's also a conference game. So you got to get your head wrapped around that. There's no longer divisions, So you have to, you know, kind of be in that horse race right from the beginning if you're going to get a chance to get to Charlotte. So there's all the different pieces that go into it. I will say that I, I bet Brian Kelly is as stressed as anybody, though, because you know we haven't mentioned this specifically yet. You guys probably talked about it. David Cutcliffe's calling the plays this year, um, so while the entire offensive coaching staff is the same, he doesn't know what it's going to look like with Cutcliffe actually pulling the strings and calling the plays, and, and how this offense might be a little different. Um, so you go into it blind to some extent in terms of what Notre Dame's going to have. Everyone talks about their offensive line is going to be really good. Um Ian Book obviously is incredibly talented. Um, but that goes both ways because they don't really know what Duke's gonna look like. We've talked about the quarterback co- competition, uh Cutcliffe calling the plays and, and what this defense will look like with with all the different weapons um that McArari and Ben Albert have to play with now.
0: David, I want to shift gears to basketball and you know it we'll get into the prep and how you how you balance these two teams in at this period of time uh in a little bit, but with regards to basketball, you've gotten to probably see and talk to some of the players and some of the coaches. What have you been hearing about the summer workouts and who has been excelling and and guys that have been kind of coming along faster than expected?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because basketball is in, in such a different place than football. They've been doing mostly individual workouts and because they have more time until their season begins. And I think you know, Coach K and his group ha- have done a very cautious approach and uh, approach in how they're getting into this and, and being um, as safe as possible. I haven't had a chance to go over there and see a specific workout yet because kind of like I was telling you guys with football, I'm going to go over there once the season begins. There's no reason to do stuff when you don't need to. Um, but the, the guy that, that you keep hearing about, really there's two guys, Jeremy Roach and Jalen Johnson. I mean, these two guys are going to be elite um, contributors. And, and then, you know – It's funny because every time I talk, everyone wants to talk about the new guys, right, and and the freshman class. And I think sometimes that can be the only guys that we pay attention to, and and you forget about some of the returners. And I look at a guy like Wendell Moore Jr. going to have a big year this year, um, and the way he's going to fit into what they're going to do with so many different guys that can contribute. I I mean, I think this team is going to look a lot more – like last year than maybe two years ago. I think two years ago when you had Zion in that crew, you kind of had your five or six guys. And last year, you know, the conversation was always, you know, nine, 10, 11. And, you know, here comes J-Rob, uh, the NC State and Carolina games, the last two games of the season exploding onto the scene. I think that this year is gonna have um, that similar feel. I, I just see nine, 10 guys that can get in and play. Um, there's not this huge differential between a starting five and the rest of the guys on the team. Um, that there maybe was a couple years ago.
0: And right now, you know, you have, I mean, really all the time, you have the best seat in the house when it comes to watching basketball in Cameron Indoor Stadium. What players are you looking forward to watching from that view? Or or is there a a season where you walk in saying, man, I can't wait to see this guy play?
3: Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk like in retrospect, I mean, I think the – one of the more fun guys to watch, Zion was obviously incredible and, and he was on his own level, but uh, in my time here, Cassius Stanley, um, because of the slender build and, and the way he could get up um, and the view you have from up top, you know, when you're down low, you get, a, you get a good feel for how high guys can jump, but when you're up top, you have a, like a better spatial perspective of how far he's coming from and he literally looks like he's flying. And, and it's, he was just a blast to watch him play. Um, Because as you mentioned, we're up in, it's called the Crow's Nets, but we're kind of on top of the building at Cameron. And it's the best view to watch a game from. Um, This year, I'm interested to watch Roach uh, because the last couple of years has just been a master class in watching Trey Jones run the floor, what he can do defensively, what he can do at the point. And and I'm interested to see how Jeremy does that as well and and how he can run things because that is the other really huge advantage or the treat I would say from being up top is you can really see How point guards are running their team and who's in control of the team and how much you know how much is the coach driving the bus versus the player on the floor that's in control. So, so that's one of the guys I'm really interested to see.
0: One last question on basketball, and I'm just curious. You know, last year you mentioned J. Rob and just his emergence, and I can tell from when we listen to your broadcast, when I get the opportunity to uh, here in D.C. that you have an extra bit of passion when you're calling a three pointer by him or a dunk or a good stop by him. Is there someone this year where you're like, man, I, if he, if this guy could get on the floor and kind of do that sort of revelation in the form of J Rob, that that's going to be the X factor of the season. There's one guy that you're just pulling for in a sense.
3: I don't know if pulling for, but the thing about J Rob is like, and you guys talk about this. I'm at practice a lot, and, and you see what the other guys around the team are like, and, and you get to see some of these guys' stories. And, and J-Rob is not dissimilar from, I guess it was two years ago now when Jack White had that awful streak where he couldn't you know, make a three if, if there was a, a pool out there on the floor. It just would not go in for him. And you see the place explode when he hit that three late in the year. I think it was against Miami. Um, those we were, were there. We were at that game. We were all yeah. there.
2: We were at that game. It was great. Yeah,
3: uh, but the <laughs> – that's the kind of stuff that I get excited for. So, um, you know, if, if I'm looking at a guy coming into this year, I've, I think Matthew Hurt might be someone that's gonna be interesting for me to watch. He, incredibly talented, um, really highly recruited. And I think through his freshman year had to work through some things. I mean, we saw the flashes of what he could be um, in terms of a score and and he contributed consistently all along, don't get me wrong. Um, but here's a guy who, has had to work for it a little bit. And and I'm interested to see what he does in his sophomore season. So those are kind of the cool moments. And, you know, some of losing it with J-Rob and and I think about that NC State game uh, with Cassius Stanley's ridiculous dunks where I clearly went over the top. But, like, part of it's the ebb and flow of the season. I mean, you got to remember that was coming off of, you know, not a great performance against Wake Forest, playing pretty well at Virginia but not getting a win. So you're kind of trying to tell the story of the season. And when J-Rob is hitting those shots or Cassius is doing those dunks, to me, I could feel the weight being lifted off these guys' shoulders. That was kind of starting to build of the expectations and, oh no, is it falling apart here down the stretch? And that's kind of what I'm trying to convey is maybe not so much, you know, in the arc of the history of the program, is this some miraculous play? No, but for this team and, and this season, Those were kind of defining moments, and I guess that's what I'm trying to get across.
2: Okay, so you've talked a little bit about football. You've talked a little bit about basketball. I want to talk a little bit about David and being a play-by-play guy because, let's be honest, all of us think you have the dream job. We all want that job. How did this happen for you? How did you become the voice of the Blue Devils?
3: Sure. Um, Well, for those that don't know, I went to college at Appalachian State. I did study broadcasting. Some might disagree after they listened to me, but um, I, I got into it. Did the women's games at App um, my last couple of years. And um, like everyone, I, I thought I was you know the hottest thing and, and got out and, and realized, as you guys know, anyone in this business knows, there's a million people who wanna do it and, and not many jobs out there. So I um, had a little bit of an adventure right out of college. I dipped my toe in law school, um, kicked around for a little bit, decided that wasn't for me. Um, my parents weren't thrilled, but you know, you figure it out. And um, got on with a, a broadcasting company The way the college space works, there's companies that kind of purchase the rights to broadcast the games, not dissimilar from what ESPN does. Um, And that company was ISP and it's actually flipped over several times now. It's the same company I work for now, um, Learfield IMG College, and got a chance to do some studio work. I got a chance to do some fill-in play-by-play at a bunch of different colleges over the course of a four or five year period, uh, while my day job was managing broadcast all across the country. Um, And then got a chance as I got deeper into do some of their national programming. And one of the schools I got a chance to fill in for was Duke. Um, got a chance when Bob had football basketball conflicts, I came over here and helped out and got to know guys like John Jackson. Uh, got to know, obviously got to meet coach uh, when I was doing those games, worked with John Roth, who I, I call the games with now. And and got to know a lot of the people on campus and um, just loved my time with them and, and being around the program. You know what's special from an on-court standpoint, but to get to know those people, um, I knew it was a great fit for me. And then you throw your name in your hat and you hope you get lucky. Um, And something they liked in me, I don't know, you'd have to ask them what they saw, but um, that that was kind of the path, working through that. So it's like everyone in this business, I think, it's a 10 to 15-year journey um, to get here. And I boiled it down to 30 seconds because I don't want to bore people, but um, (laughs) that was kind of how it worked out.
2: Uh, hey, just talking about the the logistics of games this this year, this coming year, where things are going to be very different than they've ever been in our past. Have you thought about how it's going to affect your call that you'll have? You know, you talked about the Notre Dame game, 20% of the fans. It, it, it is entirely possible you will call games where there will be zero fans there. Um, it, you know, talk about how that may be affecting your preparation or, or how you think it will impact your call. You know, that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I think, and Dave and I have talked about this on the football side of things. No one's naive to what's going on in our country, Uh, whether it be, uh, you know, the pandemic, social injustice, uh, you know, what's going on with these players finding their voice over the summer and everything that goes with that. And I think, and I don't know if I'm I'm dovetailing off what you talked about here, but I think this is all a part of it because I think this is a unique year and how we're presenting this and, and how we have to present these guys' stories. And I think that's going to be a big part of what we do. But I also believe that what we're doing is to give people a little slice of normalcy and to try to have some fun with it. Um, Because at the end of the day, that's what sports are, a chance to have some fun. So I think we're going to try to keep it loose, um, try to keep it more conversational, maybe not as dramatic as you might call a game when there's 100,000 people in the building, because I think that might be disjointed from what people are hearing. Um, but to kind of bring people in and say, let's have fun for a few hours and, and see where this goes and um, obviously present it professionally, prevent it seriously, uh, but to try to just have some fun and give people a little bit of release and and, you know, tell the stories of these kids because it's amazing we've gotten here. Duke has gone several weeks now without a positive test and I'm <laughs> knocking on wood as I do it. Um, But these guys have put in so much work and been so disciplined in in what they're doing and and living at the Washington Duke Hotel and going to practice um, and doing their schoolwork. It's incredible. Um, And I think it's an awesome opportunity. And I think we need to tell their story of of what they're doing behind the scenes to make this work and how important it is to them as much as anything.
2: That is a great sentiment. So you're talking about telling stories as we wrap up because we're almost done and we appreciate your time so much. It's time for you to tell me a good, funny story. I want to hear, like, you know, give me, give me something crazy that happened during like a broadcast at some point, or, or like some interesting interaction you had with Coach K or Coach Cutcliffe. Um, take us behind the curtain a little bit with a with a good story uh, that, that has not otherwise been revealed.
3: No, I'll give you one of each of those guys, and they give you one calling a game that was actually pretty recent. Um, so I was. When I was going through the interview process with Coach Cutt, uh, cool I mean, to give you a sense of what this guy is and how much he cares about people and how much he cares about broadcasting, when I talked with him um, and did the interview, it was very much a conversation, but he obviously has roots at Tennessee and the SEC and everything he's done, And he had queued up on his phone a Kenny Chesney song that he'd written for John Ward um, at Tennessee. And he's like, "I want to play this for you, and I want you to know that you need to have this connection with our fans." And, and that was kind of what kickstarted started the conversation. It was like, good Lord. I mean, this guy, of everything he's got going on in terms of getting ready for a season, that he had that level of detail um, and was ready to do that was kind of crazy. Uh, coach K, so I told you I filled in for Bob uh, a couple of times. So the first game I did, for, for whatever reason, normally I don't go back and interview Coach after the game. Roth would do that because I host the post-game show. But I think it was a day where we were bleeding into a football broadcast for whatever reason, I was going back to interview coach after I called the game postgame. And I want to say we're playing Rhode Island. Don't quote me on that. Um, but I went back, um, this was in that tournament that, that's played up in the Northeast, and we um I went back and it was a close game. The team had played okay, but not great. And you go into this small room uh where the coaches meet post-game before they go talk to the team, and it's all the assistants, Mickey's in there. And and coach is not exactly thrilled and, and he's, you know, saying his piece and, and doing all this stuff. And he whips to me and he goes, You ready? And I've got like two seconds to start talking to him in a space that's like four by six with seven people staring at you. And it's like, Okay, I'm just gonna go. We're not even gonna <laughs> just gonna leave this. Um, but to, to be in that space with coach was cool. I mean, we got the interview done, but it's like, holy crap, I'm sitting here across from the guy who's Best who's ever done it. He's hot, not happy with the way they played. And now I've got to ask him four inane basketball questions and and hope I don't get punched in the face. Um, But that was cool. I
2: will will tell you that I've done a couple prickly Coach K interviews in my time. (laughs) They are not fun.
3: (laughs) Uh, No, but um, from a pure broadcasting standpoint, last year in the Carolina game, I I lost my voice for about five seconds. I thought I wasn't going to be able to finish the second half. I had a little bit of a cold going on and, and went for a call and just lost my voice. Um, Roth covered for me. I coughed a little bit and figured it out, but that is like the total disaster scenario. If you're in the middle of calling a game and your voice is totally gone, but um, those are just a couple, but I don't know if that's what you're looking for or not, but um, these guys are great. They're fun to work with, but um, you haven't lived until you, you know, you're three or four inches away from coach K's face um, after he's not super thrilled with the performance. Absolutely.
0: Uh, David Shumay, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We're looking forward to hearing your voice calling all the action this year, beginning with, as you said, the Notre Dame game next weekend and throughout the football and basketball seasons. And best of luck with everything. I know it's it's going to be uh, a weird year uh, of sorts, a weird season for both football and basketball, but we are going to be able to listen to you uh, for a lot of it. So uh, we hope to have you back on in the future, but best of luck with everything moving forward.
3: Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: And that was David Shumate, the voice of the Blue Devils. He talked to us about football, basketball, and just what goes into preparation for each game and each season. Sam, what did you think of David and his thoughts on the teams that we love to watch?
1: I think this is the first time this year that we're seriously just talking about the football team and as as if things were going back to normal. So I think it, it, it took me realizing that we were having him on this week to be like, you know what? We should we should probably be previewing the football team. We should probably be talking about the season that's coming up. I've been so pessimistic that that any of this is, one, going to work, and two, is right, that I haven't really gotten my head around the fact that that they're actually going to play games. So it was it was good to talk to him just about regular football stuff, to ask him questions about Chase Bryce and, and Mark Gilbert and, and all of those guys. I'm glad that he brought up Chris Rumpf. Uh, there are There are so many interesting players for Duke this year, and I think that it is – you know, to to get into that a little bit. Last year, as we talked about, I think a lot. It was a little bit of a transition year. Duke had obviously lost Daniel Jones. The, the defense was still very good. Uh, Duke secondary in particular would, was great at at stopping the big play, but um, the the team never quite put it together, especially against good competition, which is why they weren't able to get to a bowl game. Um, but this season, even with a transfer quarterback in in Chase Bryce and, and two younger guys who have a little bit of experience, but but not that much, um, that position is still is still kind of. Um, Inexperience relative to as as David mentioned, the offensive line um, said that the, the defensive secondary and the defensive line both really strong for Duke. But I think we expect the team to be a lot better this year. Now, does that mean Duke is going to win five or six games? Well, Duke plays two fewer games than they normally would. They're down to ten games in the season, and the schedule is a lot harder. You know, the the the, hard, the easiest game that Duke gets to play is against easy ACC opponents, not easy opponents who don't get to make bowl games, who are, who are in the, that second tier of, of division one. And and as we talked about, we start off right off the bat with, with Notre Dame. Um, last year, Duke had that opening matchup against Alabama that a couple of us were at and Duke got totally walloped in that game, but managed to recover from it. Is Duke going to be able to do the same against Notre Dame? I, I don't think we want to come in here and predict that, that Duke is going to be able to beat the Irish in that in that opening matchup. So can Duke bounce back from that game and and go right into the Boston College game and 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 be back to normal so that they can get those four or five wins I, I don't know exactly what the, the Bulls are going to do this year given that schedules are smaller and, and and all of that but can do get to four, five, six wins this year um, given that there are still some transitions that they're making and the fact that the most important position on the field the quarterback is is likely going to be manned by a guy who as David was talking about, wasn't really able to be on campus in the spring, given the the pandemic, to get to know the rest of his his offensive unit, get to know Coach Cutcliffe in person a little bit more, and work with him in person. Uh, a lot of that was being done virtually, so I think you're going to hear a lot of more about that as the season goes on. Hopefully, you know you tune into these Duke broadcasts, and and David Shumate will will tell you about the conversations he's having with those guys and how challenging it is to get up to speed, but. Uh, I, I was really interested to hear his thoughts on, on the whole football team. Uh, I'll, I'll give it back to you, Donald, to, to talk a little bit about basketball, although I'm not sure, you know, the football season starting just a little bit late. We have no idea when the basketball season is, talk, is, is going to start. So not sure when we need to get into the nuts and bolts of the basketball team for this year.
0: Yeah, I mean, the basketball part we'll get to in just a second. I know for for football, you know, you were talking about some of the teams that we play. We do play Charlotte. Uh, I wouldn't call that the the lesser second tier of team that, you know, we're right. used to playing, but it's definitely a team a, a game that I would consider winnable on this on this schedule. Uh yeah, but I'd forgotten I'd forgotten that the ACC was letting all the
1: teams take one extra non-conference opponent. So right, we we picked yeah. up UNC Charlotte, who I think is a little bit better than than a lot of the teams that we normally play in those slots. I mean, Duke does not save for that Alabama game. Duke does not usually schedule up in those in those out of conference games. Duke is looking right. for easy wins, which is which is no fault of the program. But you know, they want That's to get bowl does. games. It's easier to get to bowl games if you play easier teams uh, in those yeah. non-conference and, games. And the
2: bottom line is that Sam is absolutely right that the schedule, as a result of it being ninety percent conference games, only one non-conference game, the schedule is significantly. Harder this year than what we've seen in years past.
0: Every every game counts. But I will say this. I know we got mollywhopped by Notre Dame last year. But the last time we went to South Bend, we won. So I'm going to hold out some reservations, some hope. Uh, and it really, it, it's 2020. Like, literally everything has happened. So why not go to Notre Dame and just be, beat the snot out of them? It'd be great. Yeah, but this time, but this time, I won't be there to make sure that it happens. That's so, true. <laughs> if you guys remember, <laughs> Very I was few people at that will. game last time. So uh, one of the one of the coolest sporting events that I've
1: ever been to was Duke beating Notre Dame in South Bend.
0: Yeah. So we'll see what happens there. But, I, you know, you talked about how for a minute we were able to just talk about football and talk about basketball as if nothing was happening. And I do actually appreciate that David mentioned that they are preparing with the world in mind, that he's approaching this saying, hey, there are things going on outside of this here bubble uh, that they've created at Duke. Uh, that is that are affecting these players, affecting how we view the game, and he's bringing that approach to how he calls the game. And I think, I think that's uh, that was a great question, Jason, that led to him kind of explaining how he's going about all that because the preparation for these guys uh, this year is going to be normally the logistics are are crazy. We talk about how you know he, he talked about how from football to basketball and just how those kind of intertwine with each other, especially in November when you, I mean, we, we are at Duke, we've had games where the football team was playing at 12 and the basketball team was playing at three. And you're like, there's no way that these guys are you know, preparing for both games the same day, but at the same time with this new world and this this changing environment. And really, I mean, yeah, sure. We have a game scheduled for next weekend, but for all intents and purposes, we won't know until it's, Being played until it plays, and that preparation has got to be nerve wracking to you know do all that. But I appreciated how he's talking about approaching it, and also just saying, "Hey, for you know three hours, this can be a release from every for everyone where they can just focus on you know hearing the call and and hoping Duke wins uh, on a week by week basis." So I did appreciate what he's going through as far as from a logistical standpoint and how he's working with the coaches to make that happen
2: and And I loved when he talked about the effort that Duke and the players are putting in to making sure that they are safe, that um, that there's that there's no corona, you know, you talked about they've been testing and they haven't found any cases uh, among the athletes. I, you know, I, I, I hope that other schools are taking it as seriously and doing as much as they can the way Duke is. I, I, I've been tracking, you know, we've all been tracking the numbers and talking about them. Duke has done a really, really admirable job. Um, and, and it makes me excited as, you know, versus being really scared, uh, about what's going to happen once we start actually playing games, you know, in football, starting in, in just, you know, uh, what we're like 10 days away right now, less than that. Um, and, and basketball, you know, somewhere beyond that. I, the, the only other thing I wanted to add about what, what David Schumate had to talk to us about was in basketball. I was, I was surprised when he said, Hey, everybody's talking about two guys. I, I, I did not think Jeremy Roach was going to be one of those two guys. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, there's high expectations for Jeremy Roach. And a lot of people think he's, you know, probably the second best guy in this freshman class after Jalen Johnson. And everyone knows Jalen Johnson, absolute stud, future lottery pick. You know, we got that. Um, I, 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 when he said two guys, I thought he was going to mention DJ Stewart because I've heard a lot of people talking about how impressed they have been with DJ Stewart's shooting ability. Um, for him to say that Jeremy Roach is the guy that's really impressing him gets me even more excited for the regular season because we've heard about, like I say, I've heard about DJ Stewart. I've heard about, you know, Mark Williams being a, uh, you know, just a ridiculous athlete for a guy his size and his length. Um, but to, to hear that Jeremy Jeremy Roach is the guy that's impressing everybody, you know, <laughs> give me some basketball. And, and uh, you know, I'm really, really gung-ho now for for basketball to start at some point.
0: Well, it's funny you mentioned Jeremy Roach, and I'm glad he actually did mention it because – and I don't know if this is because I live in the D.C. area and I get a lot of the news about guys from the D.C. area and since Jeremy's from here, but they've been talking a lot about how he is just the guy who's like, I'm not going to say much. I'm just going to let my play do the talking, and his play is speaking volumes because up here, they are talking about Jeremy Roach. There it, up here, there's no competition for the starting job. It's his, and just and, and that's something that was. So when he said that, I was like, oh, that really lines up with what I'm hearing. But I'm glad that someone in Durham is also hearing that and, and quote unquote seeing that uh, because I just thought it was something that the you know the DC media is like, hey, you know, hype the DC kid. But when it comes to Jeremy Roach and, and DJ Stewart, if both of them, I, I see there's going to be opportunities where both of them may be on the floor at times, as Coach K uh, tries to figure out what the rotations are going to be. We'll talk about basketball a little bit later um, down the line, but I think when it comes to Jeremy Roach, he is very interesting because if he's starting and he's everything that everyone is saying about him, then this team can go really far this year. Um, But coming up, we are going to discuss what Coach K said just a, a day or so ago about the NCAA tournament. Are we talking about expansion? Find out after this break. We are back here on the DBR podcast. And as I mentioned before the break, Coach K had some curious comments about the NCAA tournament and what he thinks should happen this year. And I'm going to give it to Jason because Jason has the skinny on what coach K said and what it could mean for the NCAA tournament.
2: Yeah. So coach K just a couple of days ago was talking, um, he was doing an interview on the ACC network, um, the Packer and Durham show, I believe. And they were talking about, you know, the, the college basketball season and what kind of form and what kind of shape it takes and things like that. And everyone agrees that it's going to be unusual. Uh, and I'll, I'm going to get more into some of the talk about what it's going to be like in just a minute. But um, coach K said, he said, look, you know, if this is going to be this crazy, if we're going to, you know, potentially only conference games or, or a lot of conference games and not many non-conference games. Uh, he said, I really think that they should look at expanding the NCAA tournament to 128 teams, double the size. And he said, the reason you would do that is you would invite every single Power Five team plus the Big East. The Power Five plus the Big East, you know, the, the six major conferences in college basketball. He said, you should just invite every single one of those teams because that's the fairest thing to do. And you'd also, obviously, you know, even inviting those teams, you would have room for plenty of at-large bids for for teams from smaller, from mid-major conferences and the such. He said, go to 128. It's just one extra game. Um, it's a lot more teams, but it's one extra game. But he he put out there that this notion that in this crazy time, trying to figure out, you know, among teams that largely play conference schedules, that he thinks you should just invite entire conferences, all six of the major conferences, which is like... Wow. You know, uh, I, I I regret I have not looked at the numbers to see how many teams there are in those six conferences to see how many, you know, of those 128 slots you would fill up. Um, but but it's a really interesting idea from Coach K. And, and then the other thing I wanted to mention there mentioned there has been more and more talk. We are getting closer and closer to the NCAA actually announcing how they're going to handle um, the season. And uh, we expect in the next ten days or so, the NCAA is going to make an announcement about um, when college basketball will begin. Um, All the reports are indicating that they're looking at either November 28th or December 4th. That those are the two dates they're looking at to start the season. Now, this is about a month later than what I think they were originally looking. um, You know, like uh, the first week of November starting the season. Well, now they're talking about November 28th or December 4th. Those are the two major dates, and um, you know the. By the way, it's worth noting both of those are after Thanksgiving. Um, it's unclear how they would deal with like Christmas and New Year's because players are probably going to go home. I've heard a lot of talk. I think what makes the most sense, what's probably going to happen is you're going to see teams forming bubbles in the month of December. You may even see like two sets of bubbles in the month of September for, for major conference teams where, um, you know, let's say Duke and Michigan State and uh, I don't know, Tennessee We'll get together with like three other smaller mid-major kind of teams. They'll play a little round. They'll get it in a bubble. They'll play a little round robin thing over the course of a week or two weeks. You get five or six games that way. Then you do another one. Like, I don't know, maybe it's it's Duke and UCLA and Texas and three smaller teams. You play another mini bubble. So you get like 10 non-conference games during the month of December in like a couple of these little bubble kind of things. And then once you hit January, mid-January, probably once guys have come back from the Christmas break, you've done a lot of testing, you know, everything's under control. Then you go into a conference bubble and you play all conference games, um, from mid-January to the end of February, and then you begin the NCAA tournament. That's what I'm, I'm hearing a lot of talk that that's the kind of thing that they're going to try and do. I think it's a really interesting idea. And, um, and then it would culminate in an NCAA tournament still during March which Coach K thinks should have 128 teams in it. Guys, what do you think about that?
0: So, first of all, I, I just – I really feel bad for Seth Greenberg because I feel like if he was still coaching, he would relish this opportunity to find a way for Virginia Tech to be on the outside looking in as the 129th <laughs> team. Uh, I, I really, no bubble. I'm really upset, There's I'm no really bubble. upset for him.
2: Well, there's no bubble, but Virginia Tech is still on the bubble. He would
0: find it. I don't care how many teams are in the NCAA tournament. He would find that bubble, and he would firmly plant Virginia Tech right on it.
1: Donald, Donald, I am furious that you took my joke directly. I was like, I was like, what I was going to say is that is that you know that this is a serious recommendation and not like Coach K. Look, Duke is going to make the NCAA tournament unless something goes dramatically wrong. Duke with this lineup with with Wendell Moore and Matthew Hurt and Jordan Goldwire coming back and all these. Um, and and Joey Baker coming back, and all these amazing talented freshmen. Duke is making a 64 team tournament. Um, they would not be on the outside looking in. This is not. I, I I think you could cook up a couple of conspiracy theories about why Coach K is is talking about the tournament this way. You know, the Power Conference is breaking away from the NCAA, et cetera. But being afraid of not making the tournament, that would be some real Seth Greenberg stuff. So if Seth Greenberg was recommending it, you would know that it was coming from a place of like, no, 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 we deserve to be in the tournament. So Donald, I'm very mad at you for, for taking my joke away from me. I think I like the Seth Greenberg joke more than anybody else. So yeah. um, but but sorry, I interrupted your point for something more important.
0: No, 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 that's fine. It, it was it was it was well it was it was a nice tangent that we just had. Uh, but when it comes to the tournament, I think the 128 teams – I'll talk about tournament real quick. I, I think 128 teams would be fine. I just don't know how they're going to do it uh, in the sense that, you know, there's always going to be someone that complains. And I think, you know, when it comes to it, they kind of – I feel like some people will want to not do it because it will kind of negate the regular season for a lot of teams. Like, if every Power 5 team is going to be in it, then why should they be playing – they could play whoever they want and go, you know, zero and sixteen in conference, and they're still in. That probably wouldn't. They'll they'll come up with something that kind of lines up where the regular season still matters somewhat.
2: Yeah, in the see, case- well, wait. Well, seeding would still matter. I mean, look, it, it, it's still way advantageous to be a high seed in a scenario like that. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, in the in the old model, if you were a sort of middling seed um uh, you know you you played a a pretty tough team you know in this scenario if you don't play well and you're a low seed you could be playing a really really good team so so seating would still matter so the regular season still matter in that regard
0: yes that that's true but you know again there are definitely and we see this in high school all the time where some teams will just be like you know what we have some injuries let's just Let's just take it easy. We know we're a good team because in March we'll get all our guys back. And then, bam, you release some team on, on the world uh, and they destroy everybody on their way to a title. So it, it can happen. I'm not saying that it's something that all teams are going to be trying to do, but it's something to consider when you think about it. When it comes to the bubbles, I do think the interesting scenario that you did in your, in your kind of uh, example, um, I think – when it comes to the bubbles, I think we will see them, but I think we'll see them more regionalized. I think there may be a couple of, you know, big blue bloods, like, you know, the champions classic has been kind of, you know, coach Cal throughout the possibility of that being a bubble. I could see that happening where those four teams uh, play a couple of games against each other uh, and just do that for the first couple of weeks. But I think when it comes to these bubbles, I think we'll see them more regionalized and those, you know, those, You'll take three of the ACC teams, for example. We'll take let's take the three triangle teams um, in the ACC, and then pair them up with some wait wait, and then pair them up with like you know some of the lower like Elon's and, and Charlottes and those type of deals in kind of a bubble and do it that way because I feel like the way that these conferences are going right now, they don't want a lot of teams going very far from their home base.
2: Yeah, but I don't I think, think it's so. going to be conference. Really quick, I don't think it's going to be conferences. It, uh, conference teams, will team up. It, it, it could be regional, but it'll yes. be like, so if it's regional, it's like Duke and South Carolina. And uh, I'm trying to think of someone from the uh, Georgetown, from the DC Yeah. Area. Okay. You know, that that like makes that. sense. So I agree with that. That works yeah. better. You don't want conference teams because you want to be able to, to play each other a little bit. Um, right. No, that, and, and that's And conference fair. games, they're going to have enough conference games. Believe me. Sorry, Sam. Yeah. I, think, it it the part,
1: yeah. I, I think the part there that is going to be tricky there is that you have a lot of different stakeholders with different financial incentives so normally the conferences schedule the conference games and the, the teams like the individual schools don't have much say in in when their games are obviously like the duke unc game always ends up at the end of the season that's kind of a, as far as we know that's just sort of a handshake agreement between duke and unc in the conference and espn but most of the games are sort of just jumbled up espn tries to time it so that they get good games on on marquee nights so that there's always a a couple of good games for big monday and saturday nights and and what have you the challenge in this system is that you're going to have to totally upend the way those negotiations currently work because you're going to have to have the conferences agreeing to perhaps split revenue in ways they didn't before for non-conference games so normally duke plays kentucky in a non-conference game the acc has nothing to do with that Duke and Kentucky get get that money. When Duke schedules a home game where they where they buy out some some smaller opponent to come in uh, to get their to get their butts kicked in Cameron, Duke pays that team, ESPN pays Duke for the for the right to televise that, and we're done. Now we're gonna probably be having the conferences getting involved in non-conference scheduling, which might be more work than they are willing to do. So you are going to hear, I think, a lot leaking out about the different conferences negotiating with each other, because on top of this the conferences are currently dealing with the fact that different power five conferences are taking different approaches to the pandemic. The Big Ten and and the Pac-12 canceled football. Now, maybe they're regretting it, maybe they're not. Um, But as they're approaching basketball season, are they going to maintain the same protocols that they had in place before? So if you do have a situation like what you guys are talking about, where you get these regional games, all right, well, what if Louisville, Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio State get into a bubble together? Uh, that would mean, you know teams from from four different power five conferences How are they gonna how are they gonna negotiate all of that some schools like? Nebraska or maybe not Nebraska because they're closer to Iowa, but you know some of the more far-flung schools, especially in the Pac-12 don't have uh, Necessarily good regional opponents. What do the who are the Oregon schools gonna play that's close to them Who are the Northern, California schools going to play that's close to them? So uh, I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of logistics involved in that that might make it so challenging that that they can't pull it off or at least not pull it off in a way that's satisfying for a national college basketball season. I think regionally it's going to work, but nationally it may not.
0: But when it comes to, you know, some of these teams, you're, you're talking about lo- the logistics between conferences. The PAC 12 has said they are not playing any sports until January 1st. So they're, even they're starting
2: if, to walk that back. They're, they're going to start, they're starting yeah, to walk, starting back to walk it back.
0: Yeah. But as of right now, they're you know, They can't schedule anything with UCLA or USC or Stanford or whoever because technically they're not allowed to play until January 1st until they say otherwise. So as this goes about, I think this is where Coach K a couple weeks ago was talking about the NCAA needs to show some leadership and show some spine and get everybody into a room and be an adult and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. And this is how you guys need to work with each other, because if you don't work with each other, we're not going to have college basketball.
2: I'll bring it all full circle to you. I think one of the reasons Coach K is talking about a 128 team tournament and talking about inviting everybody is that the reality is the regular college basketball season is going to be so different for different teams. Uh, in the past, we always knew everyone was going to play around 30 games on, over the course of the season. I think you're going to. It is entirely possible you're going to see some teams that play six games. A plus a conference schedule. Some teams that play zero non-conference games, plus a conference schedule. You're going to see some conferences not be able to put together a full schedule. It is entirely possible that when we come NCAA tournament selection time, there are teams out there that have played only 12 or 14 games and teams that have played 25 or 30 games. A team like Duke that can be on TV all the time and draw a big audience, they're going to try and play as many games as they can. But Austin P, for example, I don't know that Austin P's is going to get more than 10 or 12 games on their season. And Coach K is saying, let's go to 128 because then there's an easy way to, you know, sort of not have to worry about the playing field being completely level for everybody because the bodies of work are going to seem so different with teams that only played games in the teens and teams that played 10, 12 more games than that.
1: And we think that for the purposes of seeding the tournament that we already don't have enough games to decide if Team X is better than Team Y. Now there are going to be maybe half as many games to judge that on, and the games where we really get a lot of that structure in the in the overall rankings come. That, those are the non-conference games. Those are the games where where Duke plays Kentucky, and then we kind of have a barometer for the ACC and the SEC. Now that's just one game, right? Kentucky will also play Louisville, and um, and Clemson will play South Carolina. So like the like a few more of these games will exist, but it's not like the ACC and the SEC each play two or three teams from the other conference to really get an idea. So when we're out ranking the teams, when it's tournament time and you've got, let's say like NC state is trying to get in and and Missouri is trying to get in. They haven't played each other, but they have both played opponents who have played each other. Now it's getting really hard to to parse that it's going to be even harder this year. So yeah, an expanded tournament, I think at least lets us get rid of that argument for like, who's the 64th, 65th best team. um, Because, because now we're, we're, we're going to know even less than we do normally.
2: Arguing over who's number 129 is is a lot easier and a lot less relevant than arguing over who's 65th. So good call Seth on that. Greenberg,
1: Seth Greenberg will still get worked up about it, though.
2: We know yeah, that.
0: Someone will argue with it. It's an easy argument to make. You may be wrong, but you can still make it. But I will say this to to summarize, to, to wrap up everything. When it comes to this tournament, no matter whether it's 64, 96, 128 teams, I I look for the conferences, and the, and the teams to call for this. And, I, and I'll be interested to see if they actually do it. Whenever Selection Sunday happens, that there will be a two-week mandatory quarantine of some sort for every team in the NCAA tournament before games actually happen. And that it's not Sunday and then games start on Tuesday. It's going to be Sunday, and then everyone enters this battle of the bubble but they do it the way the NBA did it, where they give some time to make sure everyone is clear, everyone tests out correctly, and then the games will proceed. But we will leave that topic for another day. This concludes episode number 228 of the DBR podcast. Again, thank you very much to David Shoemate for joining us. It was a great conversation we had with him uh, earlier in the show. And uh, for my colleagues, Sam and Jason, thank you guys so much. For those of you out there, remember, subscribe. Send us emails if you have uh, questions or comments, dbrpodcasts at gmail.com. And we will be back sometime next week to preview the start of the football season against Notre Dame. Until then, may the Duke Band take us home.